Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. This is half an hour on your radio where we talk about all things sciencey. And on the show this week, uh, my name is Stu and I'm actually going to be talking to uh, Associate Professor Nerily Abram about some research they recently published in Nature which shows a correlation which was quite expected between the Industrial Revolution and the beginnings of climate change, which they have measured by oh, right. a whole lot of different measures. But anyway, she'll fill us in on the details with that. Yeah. Claire. Well, um, it was actually um, the Science Night of Nights. Of course, I am talking about the Eureka Prizes, the Australian National Science Prizes. And there's been a couple of really interesting interdisciplinary and sort of citizen science projects that have come out of that. So I'm going to talk a little bit about them. One which is sort of which sort of challenges some of some traditional ideas about evolution, but in a geological way. I won't say any more than that, but it's really is this about mind blowing. It's about mountains. It's Really fascinating. And Manisha is going to be telling us all about the element calcium and why is calcium important? Oh, good good for your bones or? Well, (laughs) you wouldn't have any bones without calcium. No bones about it. Stay tuned. So the Eureka Prizes, science's big night, was held. This is a night where lots of science-minded people get dressed up all fancy-like. It's sort of like the smart people's logies. Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> not, not the brown low? Is, is it more? Um, I would say more like the logies. Okay, okay. The um, logies of science. The logies of science, yeah. They actually call it the Oscars of science, yeah, but, but I think it might be more do they, like the do they, have, do they have a nickname <laughs> for it, though? Because, the, you know, the logies ah. is called a logie and the Oscars not actually an Oscar. It's an ah. Academy Award. So what are they called? They've got the Reekies? The, <laughs> the Yukies. The, the Reeky? Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to work on that. For yeah, 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 I think yeah. we're going to have to work on that one because I'm not liking either of those really. <laughs> no, okay. No. Um, but anyway, um, I find it fascinating um, what's winning at these awards because unlike a lot of scientific accolades, the Eureka or the Reekies, um, as, <laughs> as they're sometimes known, um, they cut across disciplines and they encourage collaboration um, and they also include areas like science journalism and citizen science as well, which is um, sort of interesting. Um, so I thought I would introduce a couple of standouts um, of winners for interesting sort of science that's happening around the country. Winner number one, first up, a team from CSIRO won the Research and Innovation Prize for their work uh, looking at plastics and marine day. Um, and marine debris in Australian oceans. Now, marine debris, um, including plastics, poses obviously poses a really big environmental threat to humans and animals alike, um, and not for the most obvious reasons. Um, it's also a big navigation hazard. Oh. Yeah. Um, people, people running their boats into things. Yeah, oh. yeah. Um, it can smother coral reefs. It can transport invasive species across... Um, never thought of that. Large distances, yeah, and obviously affect tourism. Yep. Um, and then, of course, the things we think of when we think of marine debris, marine debris 
um, it injures and kills wildlife and so poses the, um, a threat to human health. The six-pack rings. The six-pack rings or if you might have seen birds, um, dead birds with their stomachs cut open and yep. just like all of the plastics that are inside the, the birds or, um, or even like uh, sea turtles that yep. think that plastic bags are actually jellyfish because they jellyfish and then they eat the plastic bags and then... Yeah, it's not cool. It's just not cool. It's just... Oh, God, it's awful. Um, Anyway, no one in Australia had done a sort of nationwide scientific survey of what sort of marine debris is washing up on our shores. So we didn't know much about how it got there and whether the problem is caused by Australians or if it's washing up from other countries. Um, So the CSIRO group surveyed sites every 100 kilometres along the coastline all around Australia. Which, when you think about how big our coastline is... That's, that's a lot of coastline. That's a lot of coastline mm. and that's a lot of sites every 100 kilometres. Like, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, it, it was actually the largest scaled operation and scientific um, study into marine de- debris anywhere in the world. Uh, and parts of the research engaged with students and teachers. I think thousands of people um, were engaged in this particular research um, over one million Australians were asked to help out. Um, um, it was a huge sort of scientific, um, citizen science sort of project as well. And what they found was that within Australia, approximately three quarters of the rubbish along the coast is plastic, and most of it's actually from Australian sources, not from overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's concentrated near urban centres. So I guess what you would not imagine. Not really a surprise. Not really a surprise, but I guess it um, hits home. It's like, well, it is actually us. It's, you can't go. You can't just say. You can't go blaming yeah. anybody else yeah. for the trash that's washing up on our beaches. Yeah, it's our six-pack rings. Your chip Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the density of the plastic can range from a few thousand pieces of plastic per square kilometre to more than 40,000 pieces of plastic per square kilometre. Um, yeah, but you can still uh, help out with the research. There is a an online National Marine Debris Database with information about how you can help out about that sort of stuff. So we'll put that up on the website. Also... In the Rikis, winner of the Rikis at... <laughs> Does the um, statue look like something? Because I think the Oscar was kind of... Looked like his Uncle Oscar. Did I it? can't remember who's oh, Uncle Oscar, but Oh, that's why it's called the Oscars. Yeah. Right. Um, and the Logies, of course, named after John Logie Baird, aren't they? Who yeah. was like one of the television inventors. Well, people. it's organised by the Australian Museum. Okay. Um, they got but... the Shine Dome. With the Shinies? No, that's not the Australian Museum. That's the Australian Academy oh, of sorry, Science. Oh, sorry, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, the Australian Museum, they have that like... Don't they have that pig statue nearby or something? <laughs> So we call them the piggies. Is that the what piggies, you're saying? Yeah. Piggies. All right. The okay. I don't know about that pig the statue, porkies. but anyway. Um. People might doubt their veracity if <laughs> yeah, you call yeah. them the porkies. Okay. We're still working Indeed. on it. We're still working on it. We're still working on it. So a team from the University of Tasmania won a Eureka in interdisciplinary research for their work that was looking at ocean chemistry and how the element selenium, and don't worry if you haven't really heard much about selenium before because I had it. This is the first time I'd heard selenium, but it's actually... A very crucial element. It is. Um, and they also use it for uh, dandruff shampoo. Oh, do they? Yeah. Selenium. Selenium. Oh, there yeah. you go. Well, it also, um, uh, some would argue maybe more importantly, Stu, um, it corresponds the amount of selenium they discovered in 
oceans corresponds to some of the world's biggest mass extinctions over time. What, like increase or decrease selenium? Decreased seleniums equals extinctions. Increased selenium equals um, like large numbers of, um, of species. Anyway, before you ask any more questions, um, the scientists analysed pyrite or fool's gold as you might know it um, in drill cores. So these are sections of rocks that are drilled from deep below the ocean floor around the world. So if you've got a metre maybe of drill core, it can correspond to like hundreds of thousands, even millions of years. Um, And these drill cores gave them a timeline of what trace minerals were in the ocean up to 700 million years ago um, and just in like a couple of metres of rock. They then analysed the pyrite and found that there were low levels of the element selenium in the ocean. Um, And at the time that the selenium was low, it corresponded with three out of five mass extinctions over the past 700 million years. And these are mass extinctions that scientists have had a difficult time explaining, um, which is sort of groundbreaking. No one's really come up with ocean selenium as a major driver for an increase in in um, the number of species or a de- or an extinction. It sounds like it's still kind of, yeah, theory of its early days, I suppose. Well, they've got a lot of evidence supporting it. it correlation this... or causation? That's the thing. Uh, well, th- I don't know. I mean, it seems like this correlation, but they're, they're gathering all this evidence. And, um, I mean, I'm sure there's some... Yeah, I haven't I haven't read every everything okay, okay. that no, they've, I just, I that think they've it, produced yeah. around it, but it is sort of, and I mean, yeah, when you've got something as groundbreaking as this, obviously you want to have as much sort of evidence to support it before you come out and say selenium. Yeah, it's essential to life. So yeah, mm. yeah. Oh, well, it is essential to life, but you know, the idea that a whole kind of it can dictate the biosphere the, the would be yeah. Yeah. yeah, interesting stuff. Though. Yeah, very yeah, very interesting, interesting stuff. stuff. Um, and what they've what they're sort of thinking is sort of driving this increase and decrease in selenium in the ocean is um, the movement of tectonic plates. So it's our te- plate tectonics which release these um, trace elements um, like selenium into the ocean. So, um, I mean, this might be a very sort of geologist point of um, point of view sort of way of looking at evolution, but um, they're now saying, well, it's obviously plate tectonics that control evolution. Uh, well, you know... <laughs> Other people have said that dark matter killed the dinosaurs, so... Yeah, you know, that's, I uh, mean, maybe... Everyone's got their own pet kind of area. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I, I I enjoy reading about this sort of stuff and um, love the idea that evolution um, of living species and mass ex- extinction of species all comes back to geology and um, erosion of, of, um, of mountains and that sort of thing and, and those sort of fundamental, fundamental physical components of our world. Well, it makes sense. Like if two continents collide, you're going to get, for instance, you know, crossover of species and things and that kind of stuff. Well, and when the other way, yeah. they do the opposite of colliding, they pull apart, then you get but isolated. This, I think this is actually saying that the erosion of the mountains, yeah, itself is causing the itself yeah. is 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 causing the um the mass extinction or the or the the increase in yeah. number of species. And we look at that, but we look at other things too. I say so like the role of say carbon dioxide. Obviously, we know it has a big role in kind of temperature regulation that sort of stuff, and that is controlled by geological processes too. Mm. When you have the weathering of rocks and mm. yeah, yeah, geology is yeah. It, I mean, I guess geology rocks. Mm. 
traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. Calcium. It's an essential uh, element in all living organisms. Go calcium. In fact, it is the most abundant metal by mass in animals. According to the dietary guidelines, it plays an important role in building stronger, denser bones and keeping our bones strong and healthy. So if you don't get enough calcium, you get weak bones. Yes, basically. Yeah. Your, does that mean your, your bones break easier? Yeah, so you get like softer bones and they're less dense and then then you get things like osteoporosis and... right. Or like with kids and rickets and things like that. So it's not the best not to have strong bones. Nasty. No, it is pretty, really nasty. Um, so calcium, it's, there's a lot of it in our bodies. And uh, about 99% of that is used to build our, our bones and teeth. Uh, but the last percent is also pretty cool. The last percent is actually the 1% that I kind of like really like. Um, and this last percent is used... Um, in cellular processes and as cellular signals. So basically when there's an influx of calcium in cells, it's the, um, it's the signal for that cell to perform some sort of function and then that leads to like creation of proteins or transferring of, of gases and things like that. So everything that makes our body work. So, so it's, uh, it's part of the messaging system yeah, within the cells. Exactly, it's kind of like, um, a bit of broken telephone so like there will be a message that the calcium sends out and then the next cell will pick it up and then it's just this relay of messaging yeah so um in neurotransmission or some uh, sorry synaptic transmission it's like the body's communicating on this neural network and um it's going really really quickly like on the order of microseconds so okay this is what happens in like not even a second. First of all, um, okay, so first to back it up before we get into the process, there's these vesicles that are um, basically storing neurotransmitters and they're on the axon terminal of neurons, which is just one of the ends of a neuron. And um, the neuron will receive an electrochemical signal and the membrane will depolarize and that would call, cause the calcium channels to open and then there's this rapid influx of calcium into the cell. And this is all the quick stuff that's happening. Then the calcium, because there's a higher concentration of calcium in the cell, it activates the proteins that are attached to these vesicles, like the vesicles that are holding the neurotransmitters. It causes those guys to move. And then the, the vesicles go to the other end of the neuron, and then they release. And then they release, and the, those neurotransmitters are out in the body, but there's just a little gap and then it goes to the next neuron and it goes onto the receptors of the next neuron and then it, the whole cycle starts again. Wow, so this is but this is like how, you know a fraction of a microsecond. Yeah, it's a, like yeah, all of that ha that happens multiple times in microseconds and that's things like everything that you do is basically controlled by those things. So like your mul muscle contractions and so, so without calcium, the, the signaling would not work at yeah, all? Yeah, so without calcium, really, like, the, the big thing is that your bones and stuff would get really brittle and you probably wouldn't have really good teeth. But, like, the, this 1% is pretty, like, phenomenal. I wonder if the body 
favors the signaling system over the rest of it and maybe maybe our bodies pull calcium out of our bones. Yeah, actually that's that's exactly what happens. Um so if we are lacking calcium, um basically uh the body will start to reabsorb it from our bones and that's how our bones get softer. That's that's how we get things like osteoporosis. So yeah, like the signaling system is so essential that if we don't have it would we'll probably die. Yeah. So and so the body goes, oh, well, hang on. We'll just, we've got all this spare calcium exactly, in the bones. Yeah. Bones are not important. We'll just use all that up. But it's kind of like the, bo- but then once there is calcium, then they'll go back and build up the bones again. Where do we get calcium in our diet? Yeah. So, okay. So I'm pretty sure a lot of our listeners will be really uh, clever and already know that we get it in a lot of our dairy products, but it's also um, found in a lot of nuts and seeds, things like almonds or sesame seeds or pistachios and things like that, or in beans and in figs and like leafy greens like kale or... It's very important in plants because without calcium you don't get the cell walls building up properly and they yeah so plants they needed a lot of calcium need too. yeah yeah um quinoa figs okra all these kind of things oh superfoods <laughs> oh yeah this is this is my little advertisement on superfoods for all of you well as long as it's got calcium at least we know that's a necessary thing yeah but so it's not just calcium though because um our body doesn't actually have a way of picking up calcium or absorbing calcium on its own we actually need vitamin d in order to be able to absorb the calcium so um yeah so vitamin d vitamin d comes from the sun and from uh, so basically our we absorb it through our skin um, from the sun, but we also get it from from fish and eggs, but at a much, much less like a finer scale than we do from the sun. And um, yeah, the vitamin D is converted into its like active form. It's called calciterol, and that's in your kidneys, or it's converted in your kidneys. And then this the protein binds to the calcium when it's in your intestines and then pulls it into your body, into your system. And that's how we... Take up calcium. So, so you need you calcium and you need vitamin D. So if you, you can eat all the calcium you want and if you don't get enough sunshine, yeah. you won't absorb it. Exactly. So you've got to have like a big like glass of milk or like eat a massive bowl of almonds, but you've got to like sit in the park and do it. I'm sure Sitting it is. in the park and just enjoying some sunshine. I reckon that's a good way to spend an afternoon. Eating almonds. Eating almonds. Sure. Or drinking lots of milk. Bring a liter of milk. It'll be fun. It'll be a good day. I'm Maggie Darren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. A lot of measurement has been made of the climate and temperatures since the beginning of the 20th century, and some questions remain about how climate has changed before accurate measurements were taken. So I'm actually talking to Associate Professor Nerali Abram, who is from the Research School of Earth Sciences at Australian National University, about her work on climate measurement before people actually started keeping records. Thanks for joining us, Nerali. Thank you very much. So what does your work actually entail at ANU? Yes, I'm a, I'm a paleoclimate scientist, which means that I 
look at ways that we can reconstruct the climate prior to when we were measuring it directly. And we do that by um, looking at climate models, but also by looking at um, natural recorders of Earth's temperature in the past. So I use things like ice cores and corals um, and tree rings to, to put together information about uh, climate in the past. So do you, do you actually go out and, and measure these things yourself? Uh, a lot of them. Um, so yes, I, I have gone to Antarctica and collected ice cores. Um, I've done work in Indonesia on corals. Uh, but the, the project um, that we've just had published is much bigger than just sort of an individual scientist doing their day-to-day -day job. Uh, so it's involved a, a big international project to pull together all of the information that we have from all of the different archives um, covering the last 500 years. So people all over the world have been trying to figure out ways to measure temperature and climate over that whole period of 500 years? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's work that um, lots of individual scientists have done and then as an international team we've gone to and sort of pulled together all of those um, individual bits of information to then be able to ask a really big question like when did global warming begin? Did you find an answer to that question? Yeah, a surprising answer really. Uh, so we found that in some parts of the world the, the warming trends that we see today first began in around about the 1830s, so really quite a long time ago. That ties in quite well with the Industrial Revolution and the driving force of the Industrial Revolution was starting to use more fossil fuels like coal, burning those fuels to get machinery and factories and industry increasing at a rapid rate. So, so that seems to be, is that tied in with, with the changes that you found? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, during the Industrial Revolution, um, we worked out how to harness fossil fuels to, to do all sorts of amazing things. Um, and we can see that even um, in the, the 19th century, the, even though um, the, the world's population was smaller, um, industry was only in some parts of the world, it hadn't spread globally at that stage, uh, but we can still see the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere beginning to rise um, from about the 1830s as well. Um, and that's what we um, are then able to see, that the climate responded even to those early changes in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So this is, I mean, this is quite interesting because a lot of people say, oh, but, you know, we've been using fossil fuels for a long time and it doesn't seem to have had any effect. And you've actually found that, well, it did have an effect almost as soon as we started using them. Yes, it, it does, does show that the climate system seems to have quite a quick response um, to if we make a change like putting more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, the climate system starts adjusting to that pretty quickly. And I think that a lot of our um, understanding of that and thinking that these early changes probably weren't important is just because we don't have the instrumental records. So we're used to focusing in on the 20th century when we talk about climate change. But what this study shows is that if we do that, we really don't have the full picture and we need this other information that we get from other sources to, to really know the, the full extent of what we've done to change the climate. I guess, I mean, people sort of talk about having a baseline of data and that was, I guess, uh, limited to the direct measurements of, of instruments of saying what's the temperature and having those records. Um, and what, what you've done is sort of push that baseline back. So the baseline's actually lower than what we would have expected. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and so we, we saw um, just a couple of weeks ago that NASA um, came out with their latest 
information on, on where Earth's temperature is currently up to. And, and they're quoting a figure of around about 1.3 degrees of warming. But the important thing there is that that warming is relative to a baseline that's taken um, between 1880 and 1900. So that's not getting all of the warming. And so we do need to add a little bit um, of extra warming on top of that 1.3 degrees to account for the warming that happened before those direct measurements were being taken. So I, I guess the, um, the the figure that was being bandied about uh, in the last few years has been two degrees above what was considered normal. So we might be even closer to that two degrees already than we than we considered we were. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And and actually, since Paris at the end of last year, um, we've had this international agreement that. Um, the countries of the world want to work together to, to keep warming below two degrees, but also with an ambition of really trying to do um, what we can to keep the warming below 1.5 degrees. So that more ambitious target um, is actually frighteningly close. Um, and the difference between a 1.5 degree world and a two degree world is is quite significant, particularly if you start to, to think about sort of stability of the Antarctic ice sheets and what that means for sea level rise. Um, yeah, so those those numbers, the differences might seem small, but they actually there's big impacts associated with them. Now, as far as you just mentioned the Antarctic and the Arctic ice sheets, I guess um, the changes in the Arctic and Antarctic uh, climate seem to have been a bit slower, according to your research. What what, what's cha what's different from the tropics compared to the Antarctic climate that's meant that the, the changes have been slower to appear there? Yeah, so, so we found that the, the warming in the, the 1830s um, really seemed to start in the tropical oceans and the, the Arctic, so the, the northern hemisphere sort of high latitudes. Um, and, but when we look in the southern hemisphere, um, it appears that it took a little bit longer for, for warming to start. And in some parts of Antarctica, we, we still don't necessarily see a, a sign of that warming yet. And, and we think that um, the, the reason for that is just because the southern hemisphere has so much ocean um, and it means that the, the circulation works um, a lot differently to um, the northern hemisphere. And in particular, um, if you warm the ocean in, in the southern ocean, the way that the circulation patterns work is that that warm water will then move northwards away from Antarctica and also be taken into sort of deeper layers of the ocean. So it kind of gets hidden away. Uh, so, so we think that's the reason why um, we don't see the warming beginning quite as quickly in the southern hemisphere. Right. But over, overall, it seems uh, from, from your research, which is published in Nature this month? Uh, yeah, just last week. Okay. Um, that uh, the effects of human activity and uh, release of carbon from fossil fuels has been affecting the climate as early as the 1830s and not, not just this century, or just not, not just the last century, I should say. Yeah, that's, um, yeah saying that, yeah, if we really want to understand um, all of the changes that humans have caused to, to the climate um, since the Industrial Revolution, then we really need to take into account the 19th century as well. It's uh, pretty, um, what's well, quite groundbreaking research um, that you have been involved in, and uh, you, you're the lead researcher on this project, is that correct? Yeah, that's right, um, and, and the, the project has involved um, 
we had um, 25 researchers who are authors and a number of other people who contributed um, other parts along the way, um, and that in includes people from across the world who've been part of this project. It's, uh, it's pretty, it's kind of scary stuff really, but it's, uh, it's very interesting to know that this has been going on and, and that the, the, the climate responded so early to, uh, to changes in the, in the atmospheric carbon dioxide levels. Um, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, uh, Professor, Associate Professor Nerali Abram from the ANU Research School of Earth Sciences. Um, it's been really uh, fascinating to talk to you. Thank you very much. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.